reading this morning from Hosea 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Thank you, Laura. Good reading and all those difficult names. In 1990, I was part of a small group of about 12 people where we studied through the book of Hosea. It was perhaps the most powerful small group I've ever been in. We were all overwhelmed by a deep sense of God's incredible, persistent love for us and his amazing majesty. And at the same time, we were overwhelmed by the profound depths of our own sinfulness. It really was a defining time in my walk with God. So now, 24 years later, we're teaching through the book of Hosea over the summer. I hope you can find the book of Hosea. It's right after Daniel, so after the major prophets, and after Daniel, it's the first of the minor prophets after Daniel. Studying through the book of Hosea is a bit like I think what the experience that Isaiah had, I think of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 where it says he had a vision 
of the Lord, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled his temple with glory. And he was so overwhelmed by this vision of seeing who God was, his response was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was so overwhelmed by his vision of God that he was also overwhelmed by his own sinfulness before God. Well, my prayer for you and for me, for us, as we study this book of Hosea is that we would have an Isaiah-like experience. That you and I would see God more clearly than ever before and we would also see ourselves more clearly than ever before. Those go hand in hand. Augustine, the great Christian writer and pastor, his primary prayer that he prayed over and over was this, God, always the same, let me know myself and let me know you. That was his prayer. That is what I think Hosea can do for us. We need to see God more clearly, as Mark Buchanan put it. How you see God affects how you live. Our theology determines our destiny. All our problems, as well as all the solutions to our problems, are at base theological. How we see God affects how we live. And I think most of us, as I think about my own life and as I pastor and work with you and work among the lives of God's people, I really think we have a wrong view of God, a distorted picture of God. We do not see Him clearly. Our view of God is based far more on our family backgrounds and a spattering of teaching we've received over the years, certain ideas and prejudices that have crept in, So our view of God is distorted, and so my hope is that as we study Hosea that we will get a clearer picture of God, that it will be a bit like putting glasses on and suddenly everything comes into focus, both seeing God and seeing ourselves. Heavenly Father, as we gather together as your people here, we sit under your word and we ask that your word would accomplish its work in us, that as we study this book of Hosea, this marvelous prophet who spoke for you, that you would use it to open our eyes, to remove the blinders, to correct our vision, that we might see you and see ourselves more clearly and live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Hosea begins this way, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. I want to stop there for a moment because I just think it's important we highlight the word of the Lord. Our world is terribly confused. (laughs) Who are we as people? Where can we find fulfillment and life and joy? Where can we become all that we long to be. If there's a God, what's he like? What is love? What are relationships meant to be like? How do they work? And we could go on and on, but 
All these questions our world is totally confused about. But we are not left to ourselves. I love the fact that God's word came. Throughout the scriptures, God's word came. He speaks into our world with his truth to set us free. And he came to Hosea. Now, Hosea is one of those prophets we don't know a whole lot about because he doesn't give a lot of biographical information. We don't really know much about his family background. Uh, We do know that his name, Hosea, means God saves. It's the same root, the same basic word as Joshua. Or the Greek version is Jesus. I'm struck that there was a Joshua who came with Moses and helped the people take the land about 1400 B.C. And then Hosea shows up about 700 years later and speaks a word of God's salvation to the people. And then 700 years later, Jesus shows up speaking a message of God's salvation to the people at just the right time, always. God speaks salvation to us over and over again. I want to give you some background about what is going on, so I want to show you a map. I want to show you kind of the history so you can get a feel for the historical context and the biblical context of this prophet Hosea. Here's a picture. Egypt is here. Here's Judah, and here's the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, as you recall, about 1400 B.C., the people were slaves in Egypt. They'd been there 400 years. And God brought Moses, Joshua, and the others, and they brought them out of Egypt, and they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years until finally Joshua led them up here and across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Well, this was wonderful, and Joshua helped them take the land, although they didn't kill all the Canaanites, they didn't take it completely, and therefore we end up in the book of Judges. Our women's ministry studied the book of Judges, and so you know what that was like. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. People walked away from God, and it was a terrible time of walking away from God. For 400 years... Then at the end of that 400 years, King Saul became the first king, and then David and Solomon. They had a united kingdom. So Judah and Israel, this was one large kingdom, and God blessed them richly. But after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king, and he was not a good king. And so Jeroboam I rebelled. And that's where we got this period of the divided kingdom the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel surrounded by these other nations, Philistia, Phoenicia, Ammon, Aram, Edom, etc. So here they had a divided kingdom that fought among themselves. The northern kingdom of Israel had a lot of bad kings. So over the next 250 years or so, the northern kingdom was just a mess. No good kings. The southern kingdom had a mixture. Some good kings and mostly bad kings. Hosea, in about 750 B.C., began to prophesy. And he prophesied for a period of years, it says, and so maybe 50 years to about 700 B.C. 
So he began prophesying when it looked like this, the divided kingdom. By the time he had finished prophesying, it looked like this, to show you the next slide. The Assyrians had come down from the north. They'd wiped out every nation right down into Egypt, except, you notice, one little nation that had been saved, the southern kingdom of Judah. They're the only ones that were spared in this entire area during that time. And we'll talk in a little while about what happened there, how God spared them. But I wanted to give you a context for when Hosea was speaking, the divided kingdom, and he's speaking primarily to the northern kingdom that had been disobedient to God for many, many years. So God brings a prophecy to Hosea during this time of the divided kingdom before Assyria comes. And it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Your translation may say adultery or harlotry. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Notice a key word there. <laughs> adultery. Harlotry. Uh, the word has this idea of being sexually unfaithful. It, it doesn't necessarily mean a prostitute, though it could refer to that, but it does mean at least an adulterous woman, someone who's unfaithful to her marriage. Now think about this for a minute. Isn't this an odd request? <laughs> Hosea, here's what I want you to do. Marry someone who is already proven herself to be unfaithful. Commit yourself to her. Covenant with her. Give your life to her. It's an odd request. But God says why he wants Hosea to do it. He says, basically, I want this to be a visual aid. I want it to be a visual aid of how the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom how they've been unfaithful to me, and yet I've continued to pursue them. I covenanted myself to them, even though I knew they were going to be unfaithful. Even though they have turned away from God, they have forsaken the living God. Why would God do this? Well, He wants us to know the incredible depth of His love. God knows that deep down we are and unfaithful people. <laughs> Our hearts go astray. We, we, we want to trust God. We, we say we want to trust God, and yet we keep going to other things to look for life. We, our tendency is to run after other gods, to look to other things to satisfy us, and yet God covenants Himself with us anyway. His love sees our unfaithful hearts and he pursues us and covenants with us anyway. It's, this whole concept is stated beautifully in the New Testament in the book of Romans, chapter 5 and other places, but I want to read a few verses from chapter 5. Listen to his description of us and of God's heart. Chapter 5, starting in verse 6 of Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What an amazing statement. Listen to the description. When we're weak, when we're ungodly, when we're sinners, when we're enemies, at that point, God chose to die for us on the cross through Jesus. He reconciled us to himself, even though we were that unfaithful to him. You see, what what Hosea is meant to communicate, what God's trying to communicate through Hosea, is the scandalous love of God. It's not a normal kind of love the way we think about it. Well, you know, I love you as long as you're, you know, giving me what I need. Not at all. It's a scandalous love that pursues the unfaithful. It's a scandalous love that loves us and covenants with us even though he knows we will betray him. Do you realize? Do you realize how much God loves you as you are? That's the message. But I want to focus a a moment on Hosea. Now think about Hosea. What a start to a ministry, huh? I mean, think about it. He's been to prophecy school or whatever, and he steps out, and yeah, my first opportunity, and God shows up and says, okay, I want you to marry a harlot. I want you to marry an adulteress. Go, Hosea, and love someone who will break your heart. We don't know much about Hosea's reaction. But I think if I'd been in that position, my might have been something like this. Well, you know, Lord, I'm all into visual aids. <laughs> They're really effective. We have people who are very visually minded. I, I get that. And I think that's wonderful. And I'd be glad to bring out my flannel graph and kind of show people what your love is like. That would be great. But, uh, Lord, I've got... You know, I've got this cute little gal over here that I've had my eye on. I'm excited about marrying her. And you designed marriage to be a sacred covenant, Lord. I've got these dreams of having children by her. And I've got these dreams of moving ahead in my life. And you want to, to disgrace me forever in the eyes of my family and in the eyes of my culture and my community by having me marry a marked woman, an adulteress? Isn't there a better way, God? And, you know, while we're having this little chat, Lord, um, Gomer? (laughs) I mean, Gomer, really. (laughs) Couldn't I at least marry a crystal or a jewel or, you know, I don't know. But Gomer? Think about this. Uh, the, uh, the name Gomer actually means end or finish. I think her name was a constant reminder to Hosea that this was the end or the finish of all his dreams. That God had called him to give up his dreams 
and live for a higher purpose, to live for the kingdom of God. But, you know, it's interesting. All we see of Hosea, we don't see those kind of reactions. In fact, all we see is God says, go and take a woman of adultery. And it says, and Hosea went and took. He did it. No questions from what we can see. God says, go and take. He went and took. He was willing to face community rejection, sacrifice his own reputation for the sake of God's bigger purposes. N.D. Wright says this, It's no wonder that one of the first tasks of any prophet was to make himself shameful. John the Baptist wore camel hair and ate insects. Isaiah had to walk around naked for years. Ezekiel had to cook his food over human dung. Elijah ate only food carried by ravens, nasty carrion birds. Our community is trying to shoot him, right? Our government. The first thing God told Hosea to do was to marry a whore. But what I'm struck by is Jesus stepped into greater scandal, greater shame. When he died on the cross, we, do, we just sang about the wonderful cross, and it is wonderful because of the results in our lives, right? It carry, he carried our sin. But in Roman culture, the cross was the biggest picture of shame anywhere. It was scandalous that God himself would become a man. That was bad enough. But that God would die on a shameful cross. But I think God calls his people often to despise the shame, to be willing to face rejection of our community and our worlds. He calls all of us to live out a scandalous love. And I wonder, how was Hosea able to do this? How was he able to just go and do? I think it's because he understood God's scandalous love. He was so taken by God's love for him that he was free. Free from worrying about what the world would think. And free to do whatever God asks. I think he had an attitude of, God, your love is so great, I don't care what the world thinks. I am free to live recklessly for God. What a wonderful picture of what God wants for us. To know his love to such a depth that, that we are free to not worry about what our families or our culture thinks, but we are free to live recklessly scandalously for God. remember hearing some tapes by a pastor in England, Jeremy Barr was his name, and he described in, his, in these tapes that in his church, some of his folks started to get to know a prostitute in town. And as they built a relationship with her, they realized she had a child, and she was in turmoil. What do I do with my child? Well, I go work. I've got to provide food for my daughter and myself. 
And so these church people gathered around and they formed a babysitting co-op and they babysat her child so she could be free to go be a prostitute. How scandalous. But you know what? If she was touched by the love of God that they would even do that for her and care for her child and love her child, she was drawn in to the kingdom of God. She started going to their church, eventually gave her life for Christ, and they were able to find her other employment to provide for her. How scandalous. But God calls us to cross those kind of barriers to share the scandalous love of God with others. Are you and I so gripped by God's scandalous love for us that we're willing to be a scandal for the gospel? To cross those barriers that hold us back because we're afraid what people might think? To go talk to that person that's so poorly dressed, not worrying about what other people might think, to go reach out and share the love of Christ with them, to invite them into your home, to go talk to somebody that is repulsive to you? Are we willing to give up our dreams for ourselves? What we have dreamed for our future so we can join in with God's greater dreams for the world like Hosea did? I don't know about you, but I am really humbled by Hosea's response here. God said, go and take an adulterous wife. And what did he do? He went and took. He went and took. What a wonderful picture of God's scandalous love. But the passage goes on and God is revealing more of his heart as he reaches out and he reveals also his holy justice in the next few verses as Gomer and Hosea have three children. And God names them. Lucky them. They don't have to go through the whole process of figuring out what to name our kids. Uh, although I'm not sure we would have liked the choices. They have a son and God says, name him Jezreel. Now you need to understand the name Jezreel had very negative connotations in Israel in that day. The valley of Jezreel and the city of Jezreel had been a place where Many years before, it had been positive, where Gideon, if you recall, studying Judges, Gideon defeated the huge army in the Valley of Jezreel. Wonderful. But more recently, King Ahab and King Jezebel had Jezreel as their capital. And they had committed bloodbath after bloodbath. Jezreel was seen as a very negative place. And then Jehu, which he mentions in this text, in this prophecy had killed all the family of Ahab there, but he'd gone overboard way beyond what God had told him to do, and he committed this huge bloodbath in the same place in Jezreel. So as God says to Hosea, oh, name your son, son Jezreel, it's like, name your child Pearl Harbor. Or name your child 9-11. You see, it had a very negative connotations 
And so in this prophecy, he says, Name him Jezreel because I will, in the valley of Jezreel, bring an end to the northern kingdom. There will be consequences for forsaking the Lord. I have a scandalous love for you, Israel, people of God, but if you keep turning your back on me, there are consequences that happen. I am a holy and just God. In 733, the army of Israel marched out to meet the Assyrian army and the Assyrian army destroyed the Israeli army in the valley of Jezreel. Exactly what Hosea prophesied here. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army continued down and finally took the capital of Samaria and utterly wiped out the northern kingdom like the second slide you saw. All that was left was the little nation of Judah. There are consequences when we break the covenant. There are consequences. God brings consequences to Israel for breaking the covenant, for betraying their God. It's like a marriage. You know, when there's marriage unfaithfulness, you can love someone and seek to build a relationship with them, but when they choose to walk away and they're unfaithful to you and they bond themselves to someone else, there are consequences. No matter how hard you try to love them, there are consequences to such a choice. And Israel is now experiencing those kind of consequences. She had another child, Gomer did. And God says, oh, by the way, name this child Lo-Rohama. No mercy, no compassion. That word for compassion is a word that is derived from the same root as womb. You know, a mother's love and compassion for her child, that incredibly heartfelt love of a mother. God says, I want you to name your child no mercy, no compassion. Because you continue to walk away from me and that's what happens. There, there's consequences first of all and then as your heart is broken, as God's heart is broken, then there's no more mercy, no more compassion to be extended. The closeness is gone. The trust is broken. And that's what he says when he says, call her name no mercy. But notice verse 7. It's an interesting prophecy here. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. He's saying, by the way, Hosea, tell them that I will save the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel's been wicked for 250 years and much longer than that, but I will save Judah. And that's the second slide you saw where only they were saved. And how were they saved? God says it won't be by implements of war. Well, you may remember the story, a marvelous story told in Second Kings and in Isaiah where Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom. Assyria swept down and they besieged Jerusalem. It was a frightening time and Hezekiah got on his knees and he prayed and he said, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. You're bigger than the Assyrian army, this massive army. We're desperate. Help us. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to say, guess what? God has heard your prayer. He will save you. And what happened? That night, 185,000 in the Assyrian army besieging Jerusalem died. 
The angel of God destroyed them, wiped them out. The military leader, Sennacherib, went back to his capital of Damascus and there he was killed by his own sons. Assyria still had a huge empire, but they did not have that little country of Judah because God protected them. All that's prophesied right here. 701 B.C., it happened. That's verse 7. But notice when God says, Name your child, not no compassion. He's saying, "Ah, I long to love you, but you've betrayed me. And so he has another child, a third one, another son. And he says, Name this child Lo-Ami, not my people. Essentially, when he says that, God is saying, Israel, I am divorcing you. Notice the progression, right? From There's consequences, Israel, when you walk away and because you won't respond, I, I, I can't show you mercy. You won't give me the opportunity to show you mercy. And so essentially, I'm giving you what you've asked for, which is a divorce. But God's heart is broken over this. God's love is scandalous. He pursues us, but he will also give us freedom to choose to walk away. He is a holy God. He is a just God. And if we reject Him, He will give us what we choose. He will essentially divorce us. Now, if that was the end of the story, we'd all be in trouble. (laughs) What a mess. What a mess. But it's not. The last two verses here, verse 10 and 11, God says, but... There is a day coming when not only will I reach out and restore you, my outrageous grace will reach beyond your betraying hearts, your treacherous hearts. And there will be a new day. And he ends this in verse 11 with, Great will be the day of Jezreel. There's that negative word again. But he says there's a day coming when that will be seen as a positive word. Actually, the word Jezreel means God scatters or sows. It can be negative or positive. God scatters his people, but he is also sowing seeds that might, be, might grow up into something wonderful. And God says, when I discipline you, when I bring difficulty in your life, I may scatter you, but I am sowing seeds that life might grow, that there might be restoration And God will finally deal with his people's wayward hearts. So he says, trust me, keep clinging to me. And essentially in verse 10, when it says, your descendants will be as the sand of the seashore, what's he referring to? Does that ring a bell at all? It's the Abrahamic covenant. Remember what he told Abraham? I I will multiply your seed and they will be like the stars of heaven in Genesis 22. And he says, and they will be like the sand of the seashore. In other words, despite everything Israel has done, the people of God walking away from God, what Hosea is prophesying is that God will bring restoration. He has not forgotten his covenant with Abraham to create a people, the people of God. And in fact, this verse, verse 10, is quoted in the New Testament in a couple of places because the New Testament authors pick it up, both Paul and Peter, and they pick it up and they say, wow, 
this prophecy in Hosea, it's fulfilled in the church. When Jesus came, He created one new people. And God restored the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, verse 11. He restored the covenants. He hasn't forgotten His people. And therefore we, the Gentiles being included with Israel and Judah, the people of God, we're all included and God has created a brand new people, created a new covenant in Christ. I just want to read those New Testament passages because I think they're key. Romans 9, verse 25 and 26. He says this, As indeed God says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and he who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, lo ami, there they will be called sons of the living God. Peter says in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he quotes these same passages as well. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, lo ami, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, no mercy, <laughs> but now you have received mercy. So the New Testament authors say, wow, Hosea, it's fulfilled in our day. We're living it out. God is a God of outrageous grace. Even though we walk away from Him, He keeps calling us back. He keeps loving us. Verse 11 is a renewal of the Davidic covenant. Remember, God came to David and said, one of your descendants will reign on the throne. And over and over again, they were rebellious. There were many evil kings, but they all pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment. This was fulfilled in Jesus in the formation of the church, and finally it'll be fully fulfilled when Jesus returns again someday. You see, God's grace is outrageous. We've rebelled, we've sought other lovers, we've betrayed God, and yet He has made a way for us to be restored to Him. That is outrageous. And it's not how we tend to think about God if we're really honest. We tend to think about God as a God who kind of is this holy policeman, right? He's keeping an eye on you. You better measure up and you better keep your sins confessed up. You better do it right or God will be angry with you. But God's far greater than that. God's far greater than we ever imagined. He's not a God like the one we manufacture in our minds. When people say things like, well, you know, there's so many bad things in the world and there's evil and God, if God's really God, He shouldn't let it happen. And if, you know, if that's the way God is, I could never believe in a God like that. Well, you know what a proper response to that is? I could never believe in a God like that either. That's not the God I believe in. The one that you're blaming for everything that goes on. God is a God like this in Hosea. A God whose love is scandalous and it's willing to pursue us when we keep walking away. When we betray Him over and over and we're unfaithful. 
when we pursue other lovers. He's a scandalous God, yes, but he is also holy. He just can't tolerate sin. He's got to deal with it. And how did he deal with it? He dealt with it on the cross. But he will let us go our own way if we choose. He gives us freedom. But he has an outrageous grace that keeps calling us back, opening the door, giving us freedom to come back to him if we will only turn to the cross. If we will only let him restore his covenant with us. Folks, that kind of God, the God that Hosea followed and obeyed, the God that Hosea said yes to, that is a God that we can all trust. A God of scandalous, outrageous love and grace. Let's pray. How amazing, Lord, that your love is so incredible. Open our eyes to the depth of how scandalous and outrageous it is that we might see how great you are and also see how desperate we are in our wayward hearts to come to you. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet your love is great as you call us back. Help us to trust in the true God of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.